Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined remotely by fellow co-host Joe Wolfond. Yo, yo. Joe, we've got a lot to talk about today. All-Star reserves are in, so we know the full All-Star rosters for both conferences. We're going to talk about a rather unusual coaching change in Minnesota. And we will get to, honestly, what might be our favorite topic so far this season. We've referenced it on a few pods already this year, uh, and that is the plethora of East Fugazes. So let's let's start with the most timely topic at hand, and that's the All-Star rosters. And those rosters consist of, from the East, uh, last week we already you know found out that the starters would be Kevin Durant, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Joel Embiid, Kyrie Irving, and Bradley Beal. The reserves announced this week, James Harden, Jalen Brown, Zach Levine, Ben Simmons, Jason Tatum, Julius Randle, and Nikola Vucevic. And in the West, joining the starters, which were Steph Curry, Luka Doncic, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, and Nikola Jokic, our reserves, Damian Lillard, Donovan Mitchell, Chris Paul, Paul George, Rudy Gobert, Anthony Davis, and Zion Williamson. We gave our picks for who the reserves should be after the starters were announced last week. So I'll just ask you, you know, is there anything you really, really disagree with here? Is there one snub that stands out to you more than others? I guess Bam is maybe the most surprising omission. Just because I think like he, he's been awesome and... I don't, I said this on last week's episode and I'll stand by it. Like there are any number of worthy candidates. There were always going to be some guys that you could call snubs just because there have been so many deserving all-stars this year, but just because they were, you know, quote unquote snubs doesn't mean that they were necessarily more deserving than the people who who we named as our all-stars or who were ultimately going to get picked as the reserves. There's just been a lot of quality individual play in, especially in the Eastern conference this year. I mean, I think for both of us, like that was the tougher conference in which to sort out the picks from the omissions. And I don't like on an individual level, have any issue with the players who got picked. I personally think that Bam is a better player than Julius Randle and Nikola Vucevic. Is he having a better season than those guys? I mean, I don't think it's cut and dried. Like those two guys have both been unbelievable. Zach Levine has been unbelievable, even though he didn't make either of our list of reserves. Like I don't think there's any argument to be made that he hasn't been deserving with the level that he's taken his offensive game to. And the myriad ways in which he's scoring and carrying what's been a better than expected Bulls team. But I do, I mean, I just expected Bam to make it based both on how he's played this year and the respect that I figured he would have garnered at this point from the coaching ranks, you know? And I, I don't think that necessarily what he did in the playoffs last year should have any bearing on how all-star voting goes for you know, what's an entirely new season. But I do think it's, you know, it's not a situation where he went haywire in the playoffs last year and has regressed and he would have just been getting some kind of a legacy vote for the performance that he put forward in the in the bubble. 
it's like he's continued to be as good, you know, every bit as good as he was in Orlando. So I just figured that he would be rewarded for that. But again, like Vooch has been unbelievable. And, you know, it's not his fault that that Magic team is snake bit and completely depleted. And he's doing his damnness to carry them to respectability. And you laid out the case for Randall, I think, quite convincingly on the last episode. And it's hard to argue with what he has done and, you know, how he has been by far the best player on a Knicks team that's vastly overachieved. So I I was surprised that Bam didn't make it. I do think he deserved to, but I I can't really take umbrage given the quality of guys he was competing with for that spot. Yeah, I, I was surprised by Vooch. I think a lot of people were. I think if there was one real surprise of the reserves, I think it was Vooch making it. But I don't think that means he's not deserving of it. As you mentioned, he's having a fantastic season, a phenomenal year. Um, and it, it's hard to punish him for how bad his supporting cast is. I will say, in the West, I don't like the Zion made it, man. Look, I know he's having a great statistical year. I know that he is... Scoring with a, at a historic efficiency inside. But I think what shocked me was that he got, like, the coaches put him in. You know, it's one thing if he got voted in by the fans or even players or if there was an injury replacement and he was selected by Commissioner Adam Silver and then, you know, people have their conspiracy theories. Well, it's about, well, he's like the guy they're trying to push for national TV purposes and whatever. But the coaches voting Zion in really shocked me because... The coaches, more than any other of the voting groups, usually talk about how they value wins and, you know, no shit because their jobs literally depend on teams winning and losing. But, you know, it's usually the coaches who do right by players that are maybe like the third best player on a great team, right? It's usually the coaches who will make sure that guy gets in. So I don't know. It was, it was just really weird to me to see them push Zion in when he has been a one-dimensional player on a bad team and an underachieving bad team. So obviously he's got the statistical case and, and you know the raw numbers production case. I get it. There will be plenty of all-stars in Zion's future, I think. But I, I was just surprised and honestly a little disappointed that they rewarded him for the season he's having over. It's not just Devin Booker. I mean, you can go... Heck, you can go Mike Conley, if we're being honest. You can go Christian Wood even, although I know the Rockets are now even worse than the Pelicans in the standings. DeMar DeRozan. Yeah, because who, Christian Wood hasn't been playing. Yeah, exactly. DeMar DeRozan, um, who you know we've praised throughout the season for the year he's having. And again, a Spurs team that's overachieving largely because of his work. So th- that if I had one issue with the 14 reserves, it's that the coaches rewarded Zion. So a point that I've seen and heard made a couple of times that I think makes a lot of sense is that the coaches are probably more inclined to vote for the players who force them to make the most adjustments. And at the end of the day, I think game planning for Zion is probably keeping coaches up at night a lot more than game planning for like Mike Conley or DeMar or Shea or even Devin Booker. You know what I mean? So I, I definitely get it from that perspective. You called him one-dimensional. I, I, I know you didn't mean it like this. Like, he plays essentially one side of the floor. I should have like said one-way. He's a one-way player. He's not one-dimensional. No, he's actually, like, become a very multifaceted scorer in that, right. 
you know, he, he can be super effective running the pick and roll on either end, right. As a ball handler or as a screener, I think his playmaking has been really sharp. He's a bulldozing driver. He's a great post player. So, you know, offensively, I think the case is very clear cut and for, you know, look, I I don't think he's a good one-on-one defender, but he, I don't think he's a terrible one-on-one defender. I think like his issues defensively are more in like a team scheme and him getting lost off of the ball, him not really knowing what his assignment is, him being slow to close out or blowing rotations. And I don't know if that's the kind of thing where whether it's in the flow of a game or watching tape, opposing coaches are are sort of singling that out and being like, well, I can't vote for Zion as an all-star. I mean, he totally botched that rotation. <laughs> like from that perspective, I think it's perfectly understandable actually that Zion got in. And that doesn't necessarily mean we have to agree with it, but I also think given how effective he's been at the offensive end, as much as some of that is wiped out by his defensive deficiencies, I don't think it's an egregious pick by any stretch, but um, we're still going to get an Anthony Davis injury replacement and that'll give an opportunity to one of those guys who got left out uh to punch their ticket okay let's talk wolves Um, i mean listen you wrote i can i call it a scathing piece it was a yeah yeah i think you can it, it was a piece that was quite critical of the timberwolves organization and the sort of trickle down dysfunction that has begun at the top with glenn taylor and has plagued that franchise for going on two decades now. And this is sort of the latest in what you described as kind of a carousel of moves that always seem to leave the wolves on the wrong end. And that's not to say that this won't work out for them, but obviously it was a little bit strange in terms of the way that it was executed, how quickly it came together. I mean, clearly they had some sort of an agreement in place already before Ryan Saunders was fired. And this has been in the works maybe since 2019, mm-hmm. he, he interviewed for their head coaching position yeah. and they wound up essentially removing the interim tag from Ryan Saunders, possibly at the behest of Glenn Taylor and against the will of Gerson Rosas, whatever the case, it does seem like the wolves have had their eye on Chris Finch for a while good on the Raptors for allowing Finch to pursue this opportunity. You know, his first head coaching job in the NBA after he's obviously been around and paid his dues for a long while, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it's very strange. And there's a reason that we haven't seen anything like this happen. You know, a team hire a new head coach from another team staff in the middle of the season since 2009, so yeah, that, I mean, I don't know what you can kind of delve into the, the issues that you went over in your piece and we can maybe start to talk about what this means for the Wolves and what Finch needs to do to turn this ship around. Yeah, well, first of all, you know, I've got nothing against the the move itself. Firing Ryan Saunders, hiring Chris Finch makes a lot of sense. For one thing, you know, all due respect, Saunders seemed in over his head as an NBA head coach the whole time. Uh, the Wolves are a team that kind of lacks an identity on both ends of the court. And I know that's something you hear, like media says a lot, or you'll hear coaches say, and sometimes it just seems like words being put together. But 
I think with the Timberwolves, it really does apply in, in terms of them not really having an identity on either end of the court and not really seeming to have like a direction and uh, a clear sense of like purpose and, and how they want to play on both ends. So that's one. Chris Finch has been lauded as a future head coach in the NBA for a while. So again, nothing against them hiring Chris Finch. The issues for me are about the obviously unusual timing and the what the move itself probably signals. And a big part of it is what you mentioned with what went down in 2019. So they, they hired Gerson Rosas away from Houston to take over the Timberwolves basketball operations. Rosas, you know, gets on his Kanye West, says, I'm a fixed Wolves, as Kanye famously tweeted uh, about <laughs> his Wolves track years ago. Um, and everyone expects at the time that he is going to hire Chris Finch because he has a history with Finch dating back to their time in the Rockets organization with Rio Grande, the D-League team, when Chris Finch led them to a D-League championship and Rosas ran the team. And then they both worked for the Rockets uh, in the front office and as an assistant coach. So Finch was actually one of the favorites to land that job in 2019 when Rosas got the job. Rosas interviews Finch for the job. And the Timberwolves decide to go with Ryan Saunders. Okay, fair enough. They, they made that decision. Does it make any sense if that decision was actually made by Rosas, who's running Timberwolves basketball operations? Does it make any sense that about 21 months after deciding that Ryan Saunders was more qualified and better prepared and for whatever reason, the better guy for the job, that less than two years later, not only do you fire Saunders, that's fine, but you are then in such a rush and so hot for the guy that you deemed less than qualified than Saunders two years ago that you have to go and execute this over a random weekend in the middle of the season. No, that like that doesn't add up, right? And if you truly did believe that Saunders was the better guy 21 months ago, for whatever reason, Chris Finch, you know, wasn't good enough to get the job then, then doesn't it make sense that you, at least on an interim basis, bump David Vanterpool up the bench, give him a shot at the interim job, since he, like Finch, is also thought to be a future head coach in this league. And, you know, we know the issues that exist when it comes to representation among coaches and front office staff in a league that is predominantly black, but one in which the bosses are predominantly white. I'm not saying Vanderpool should have got the job for that reason, but he there are many people in the NBA, you know, of various walks of life that agree Vanderpool is very close to being next in line for an NBA head coaching job. So I don't have an issue if they deem Chris Finch the more qualified coach. My issue, again, is that it, it something doesn't add up here. You can't say 21 months ago, he's not even as qualified as Ryan Saunders for this job. And then less than two years later, be like, you know what? Even though we passed on him once, even though I have a history with him and know who he was and still passed on him, I'm now, I need to go get this guy ASAP. I need to move heaven and earth and do this thing that hasn't been done in over a decade to get him instead of even giving Vanderpool an interim job. No, to me, that signals that this was Gerson Rosas' guy all along. And if that's the case, what does that tell you about that 2019 process? As you mentioned, and as I wrote about in the piece, it very likely means that Glenn Taylor, who is one of these owners that has a reputation for being very meddlesome, probably overruled Rosas at the time. And 
I just don't like that in general for the Timberwolves. That doesn't give me faith that he is now going to relent and let Gerson Rosas and Chris Finch build and mold this organization the way it needs to be built and molded. So that's my biggest issue with it. And, you know, as I stated towards the end of that piece, and you know it as well, that carousel, you know, of coaches and star players. If you just look at like the way, the sequence of the way things went. So this team has made the playoffs because they're going to miss it again this year. This franchise has made the playoffs once in the last 17 years. And in that one season they made the playoffs, it was largely thanks to Jimmy Butler and Tom Thibodeau. Now, they weren't the only two guys to make that push. Towns had a great year that year. You know, the team came together. They kind of survived a stretch when Jimmy Butler got hurt, but not really. Uh, but I'd, I'd say Jimmy Butler on the court and Tom Thibodeau off the court were a big reason why that team made the playoffs. And within six months after that happened, Jimmy Butler was traded because he wanted out and on his way out exposed some cold truths about the lack of competitive spirit that he saw in Towns and Wiggins. Tom Thibodeau was fired later that season. Fair enough. I think we know they were wrong on Butler, as you know many teams have been. But then the irony of it is Ryan Saunders, who they had replaced Thibodeau, gets fired after losing to a Knicks team that is overachieving with Tom Thibodeau at the helm. So again, as I wrote in the piece, the carousel of NBA coaches and stars keeps spinning. And no matter how it spins, the Timberwolves always come out losers. There's a lot to unpack there. My biggest takeaway, as I concluded the piece with, is that it's not that Chris Finch isn't the right guy for the job. It's just that the Timberwolves do not deserve the benefit of the doubt. Totally fair on them not deserving the benefit of the doubt. Again, a lot to unpack there. A couple things. I don't really think that Tibbs deserves a ton of credit for their playoff appearance that one year. I actually think Tibbs didn't do a great job coaching that Minnesota team. You know, like, stylistically, his minutes allocation. I I didn't have any issue with them moving on from Thibodeau. And quite honestly, I think from a process perspective, there are a lot of positive things that Ryan Saunders did. I think he unleashed Cat a little bit, like he opened up the court for him, had him playing more on the perimeter and initiating more possessions, has the Wolves essentially with one of the most efficient shot distributions in the league as far as like where their shots are coming from. I think they're third in the NBA from an expected effective field goal standpoint, because they're just getting a ton of shots from three and a ton of shots at the rim. As far as how they're generating those shots and who's taking them, like, yeah, it it hasn't been an ideal process, but I also think you could argue, and I don't need to like get out here and cape for Ryan Saunders you could argue he only got that job in the first place because of nepotism. And there's a lot bound up in that. Obviously he has deep roots and a, and a deep connection to that franchise. And and it was really traumatic what that organization went through, you know, with the sudden tragic passing of flip. So I'm not going to like pass any judgment or draw any conclusions based on how that process played out, but he did in some ways get kind of a raw deal because that team has been ravaged with injuries And I think the front office deserves a lot of blame for the rosters that they've put together and like the number of eggs that they put in the D'Angelo Russell basket. Like, quite frankly, I think the team has looked better with Russell out of the lineup. I know they're still not really winning games, but they've been more competitive 
and their defense has looked miles better without him. So I don't know. I, I don't know how much of that is fair to put on Ryan Saunders, but one way or another, I think like Chris Finch is going to have his work cut out for him. And I agree with every, like uh, the, the dialogue around Vanterpool getting stepped over is totally valid and totally legitimate. And I remember us talking about this in the summer, uh, the, the, problem that the NBA has with proportional representation in the coaching ranks and in the front office ranks and and in the media wanna, ranks. yeah absolutely in the media ranks as well and like if you want to get just a small sense of the feathers that this is ruffling in the coaching community and specifically of the black coaching community uh, Mark Spears at the undefeated wrote a great piece essentially talking to uh, black coaches who are quoted anonymously and like expressing their hopelessness that they feel when a move like this happens and when a a seemingly qualified and very deserving black coaching candidate gets stepped over. I guess I would hope, you know, and I'll throw out a a silver lining and I don't want to minimize this at all, but like, I don't necessarily know that I would wish that Timberwolves head coaching job on David Vanterpool, you know, (laughs) like I think I would hope that maybe he'll, he'll wind up, in a better situation when he does ultimately land his first head coaching job, you know, rather than having to navigate the mess that is the Wolves' current roster. And and we haven't even gotten into the fact that, like, they might wind up with a top five pick and not even get to keep it this year. Like, the best outcome for them would actually be to be as bad as possible for the rest of the season and try and keep their top three protected pick. Yeah. And then even if that does happen, they then owe the Warriors an unprotected pick next year. And I still think you would way, way rather keep the pick this year than... I, like, no, you know I, I, I mean? agree. I agree. I'm just saying either way, they're a bit boned. Like, I, I'm not saying they're more boned if they have to give up the unprotected pick next year. I agree that it, the best course of action for them would be to land the top three pick this year in what seems to be a loaded draft star talent-wise. Make that pick, and then whatever happens next year happens. But either way, it's a terrible situation to be in. You're a bad team who's been bad for a long time, who needs quite the infusion of talent. And barring a miracle, okay, I don't care how good Kate Cunningham and some of these other guys at the top of the draft this year are. You're not just adding a, you know, a 19-year-old star to this team next year and going to be good in the Western Conference. So chances are they're going to struggle again next year and not even have a draft pick to look forward to. Like the situation is terrible. No matter how you look at it. I think if if they if Cade is as good as it seems like he's gonna be right from the jump, I think they could be good next year. I don't hate their young talent base. I'm I'm a big fan of Jaden McDaniels, who he, he's like the one def- incredible defensive tools. And you know, I've been a fan of Josh Akoji for a while. I think Anthony Edwards for all his foibles as a you know, nineteen year old rookie has flashed tremendous upside and I I continue to think that Carl Anthony Towns for as disappointing I suppose as he's been at the defensive end of the floor is one of the most gifted offensive players in the league so I, I don't I don't think it's out of the question that they could turn this thing around in a hurry with the right draft pick but there's a lot of ifs obviously in that equation yeah the biggest if is that you know with the new lottery odds even the worst team in the league statistically speaking 
has a better chance to land outside the top three than they do of landing a top three pick. So just statistically speaking, they're most likely going to give up this pick this year. And that is a catastrophic thought for a team that just badly needs something to break its way. And it's weird we're saying that when they just had the number one overall pick and have had for high like picks. the third time yeah. in six yeah. years. And yet we're still sitting here saying they badly need something to break their way. That goes to show you how they have squandered that. And as you mentioned, you know, Rosas and the current front office should not get off scot-free here. Like they're, they're part of the problem so far too. Now they haven't had enough time to like fully build this thing the way they want. And as we both noted, Glenn Taylor meddling might've impacted that but glenn taylor's not going anywhere until that sale happens you know there was the rumors last year they're trying to sell the team until that sale happens he's not going anywhere so they're gonna have to work with and around him and in rosas's first year and a half two years on the job not great when you consider the reason they are out a pick this year or potentially next year is because they thought dumping wiggins's contract and taking back d'angelo russell was the right move now dumping wiggins contract fine Taking back Russell, I guess, because, you know, he's friends with Towns and maybe they thought just in general, it was good business to keep Cat happy. I don't know, but you look at that move now and the way it's looking. Yeah, but I don't know. We've watched a lot of Raptors basketball this year and Chris Finch has had a big hand, I think, in crafting their half-court offense, which has frankly overachieved. Like it's been way better than I think either of us expected it to be coming into the year. Raptors are top 10 in offensive efficiency. You know, they, they run a lot of creative and motion heavy half court sets, you know, it's like flare screens that flow into pick and rolls and a lot of dribble handoffs and cuts and do a lot of interesting stuff out of their horns action. Like I, I think there's no doubt that Chris Finch is a creative basketball mind who is going to unlock some new things for that Timberwolves team. But ultimately, roster construction is still the most important factor in all of this and still a ways to go on that front. Yeah, and ironically enough, Chris Finch's basketball journey is not unlike that of his most recent boss, Nick Nurse, right? You know, after a pretty unsuccessful pro playing career in Europe, I believe, ends up coaching in England, Belgium, and I can't remember where else ends up winning a championship in the D-League, uh, coaches a national team with Nurse, Great Britain, spends years as an assistant in the NBA, bouncing around, and you know, now gets his shot. Obviously, he's not going to have the head start to a title that Nick Nurse had in Toronto with Kawhi and that crew, but it'll be interesting. Again, I, you know, nothing against Chris Finch. He is seemingly more than qualified for this job, and I think Timberwolves fans should be excited about what he can do with the team, and even with Cat. You know, like, a lot of people in the NBA laud Fid his early work with Nikola Jokic in Denver. So I, I think Wolves fans should be excited. Just as I wrote in the piece, I think there are also a lot of reasons to think critically about this move and also determine whether the Wolves deserve the benefit of the doubt. Before we move on, I will add that just right before we, we started recording, actually, uh, Rick Carlisle and the NBA Coaches Association put out a statement essentially expressing disappointment in the lack of transparency and thoroughness of the Timberwolves coaching search and talking about how they want to put forth initiatives to aid in that process going forward and that they'll have more details in the coming week. So it's not something that, you know, has gone unnoticed. That's for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, that that's good to see and good to hear. And again, going back to the conversation that we had about this in the summer, it's a lot of times, you know, these moves in a vacuum are defensible. You know, it's not like, like firing Nate McMillan and Gentry and Doc Rivers, which sort of prompted that conversation that we had in the first place. On an individual basis, like you could justify those moves and the hires that were made in their place. I mean, Doc got rehired. Ty Lue took Doc's place with the Clippers. But again, like you, you can't just look at those on like a case by case basis without acknowledging the broader structural issue here, you know, which is that there are seven black head coaches in an NBA that is made up of 75% black players. So, you know, what those measures look like, whether it's something akin to like the Rooney rule that the NFL puts in place, as far as, you know, a mandate to include a certain number of minority candidates in any head coaching search or something to that effect. I do think that that is very necessary. And I think the the frustration that we're seeing expressed by players and coaches alike about the way that this went down really speaks to that. Yeah, no doubt. All right, I think what we'll do is we'll take the break here and we will come back and dive into the Eastern Conference. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. If you're a loyal listener of this show, you might be getting sick of the word Fugazi, I apologize. But, um, I mean... It's a fantastic I, word. Listen, I, and at this point, I almost I almost consider myself the official gatekeeper of Fugazis and clowns. So I, ho- I hope people bear with us. But I've tweeted about, you agree, we've discussed many times this year that every East contender has some Fugazi in them. I'd argue Brooklyn probably le- like less so, if maybe not even anymore. But... Whether you want to talk about the fraud contenders or if you want to dig a little deeper and get into some of the teams maybe surprising us or disappointing us outside of the main group of contenders, I figure now's a good time to do that. So let's just dive right in. Where do you want to start? Uh, Do you want to start with one of the teams we consider a Fugazi contender? I kind of want to start with Brooklyn just because I think they're above this and we should acknowledge that. And... You know, look, I I won't say that I didn't have certain doubts about this team at at various points in time this season, but I think I've been pretty consistent in saying from the jump, even before they made the Harden trade, that I believed in their upside. And obviously in the wake of the Harden trade, the way that he has played and the way that they've played this 5-0 stretch now that they're on without KD makes them to me very clearly the best team in the East and the heavy favorites to make the finals, maybe even the favorites to win it all at this point, given some of the stuff that the Lakers are dealing with and the success that they've had in their matchups with the Clippers so far. And and that game that they played against the Clippers on the weekend was a, a great game, a really fascinating game with some matchup wrinkles that I enjoyed. And also to me, like, DeAndre Jordan's best game of the season and maybe the best game I've seen him play in like a couple of years. 
And if they can get that version of him in the playoffs, it's game over, I think, for the rest of the conference because he was barricading the rim. He was also holding his own on switches. His activity level on defense was very high. And the Nets defense in that game, I thought, in general, was pretty solid. And and I've talked in the past about how I think the Clippers are kind of a good matchup for them just because they don't put a ton of pressure on the rim. So the Nets' lack of rim protection isn't as big of an issue. But I just thought that was a really impressive Nets performance. And one thing that I thought was particularly interesting in that matchup was that the Clippers, for long stretches, tried to have... Ivica Zubac or Serge Ibaka, whichever one of those bigs was on the floor, rather than having them guard uh, DeAndre Jordan or Jeff Green, they were guarding Bruce Brown, who is not really a shooting threat. And so that prevented them from getting dragged out to the perimeter. And it also, I think, was meant to dissuade the Nets from using their preferred screeners in pick and roll, which is usually DeAndre and Jeff Green because they were basically having PG and Kawhi and Marcus Morris guard Jeff Green, DeAndre, like in order to like switch those actions. So instead, the Nets just ran pick and roll with Bruce Brown as the screener to drag those Clippers bigs into the action anyway. And it worked incredibly well. Turns out Bruce Brown is a great screener and like a really effective role man. He's averaging 1.4 points per possession as a role man this season. He's shooting 59% on floaters, a lot of which are coming out of those like short roll scenarios. And I'm just loving everything about Bruce Brown right now. He dropped 29 on the Kings last night. A ton of those buckets were just like him leaking out, running the floor hard and getting behind the defense. He was operating in the middle of the Kings zone and dicing them up from there. Uh, he's He's a great cutter. And on top of the offensive punch that he's given them, Brown is like, at worst, their second best perimeter defender, certainly their best with KD out. And his ability to guard on the perimeter or also hold his own against big guys has given them a lot of lineup flexibility and has made a lot of their small ball lineups work. So I think they've looked great. Harden's been unbelievable. Like we wrote a piece today where we were kind of like looking into how some of the recently acquired or traded players have fared with their new teams this season and just digging into some of the stats behind what Harden's done as a net. I mean, scoring 1.2 points per game in isolation, which is actually, it came down after that game against the Kings. But basically when I was doing the research for that piece, it was before the Kings game and he was at 1.24 points per isolation, which was at that time second in the league, just behind KD. Who is it ahead just of? ahead of Kyrie. Um, exactly. And, and I, so I thought that, like the volume was interesting too, right? Because he's isolating about half as frequently as he was last season. And he sort of redistributed those possessions as a lot of pick and roll possessions. And just generally is like facilitating way more. And like his field goal attempts and his usage rate are lower than they've been since his last season in Oklahoma City. So, I mean... We know like he's he's become their point guard essentially while Kyrie has basically moved to the two and he has focused more on distributing and I think that's the perfect role for him to be playing on a team with this much supplemental scoring and 
I think, you know, whatever concerns anybody may have had about there only being one ball or these guys sort of stepping on each other's toes have been washed away by his ability to be that high-level distributor and leaning into that role. I think it's incredible anytime someone shares or writes about, as you recently did, the fact that the top three isolation scorers in the league right now are Harden, Durant, and Kyrie. And it's not really surprising, but it's incredible to think about. Um, look, in the playoffs, the most important skill is having a guy, preferably multiple guys, who can create his own shot in any scenario. And, you know, obviously, preferably can make a fair amount of them too, but can create and make his own shot under difficult circumstances against very tight defenses and from all levels of the floor, right? They got three guys who can do that. And while Kyrie maybe isn't as great an off-ball player as he could be with his skill set, he's still pretty good and, like, is a threat off the ball. Like, none of these guys are Russ, you know, off the ball where they are taking away from your offense when they're off the ball. Like these guys are peak isolation scorers who all should be able to thrive off the ball, can all shoot, can all make plays for others. Harden, you can argue in terms of just being a, a talking about his point guard skills, it would be in the conversation for best point guard in the league. I don't understand how any team in the East and quite frankly, any team other than a healthy Lakers squad can stop them in the playoffs because the specific elite skill that carries you in the playoffs, this team has three guys who possess an abundance of it and who don't really take away from the other two guys when they don't have the ball or from the offense in general. How do you beat that? How do you beat that four out of seven times in a two week span? If you're an Eastern Conference team, I think you don't. Like that's exactly. that's sort of how I'm feeling at this point. Um, I I did mention in that piece, and it's sort of the one thing that is still, I wouldn't say it's bothering me, I guess, but it's kind of it's not what I expected, which is that Harden is still taking 87 percent of his threes off the dribble as a net, which is like that's basically where he was at with the Rockets, and I was kind of thinking, oh, he's going to the Nets now, you know. Some of the time he's going to be playing off of the ball and he'll have Kyrie and KD creating for him. He's going to redistribute those threes. Way more of them are going to be coming off the catch. Nope. Exact same ratio. And like that speaks to the fact that he still basically doesn't do anything after he gives up the ball. And it's fine because on a team with two other high level creators like that, it's, it's not as damaging. And he's still drawing a ton of defensive attention just by being on the floor. But I would still like to see Harden engaging in a little bit more off-ball activity. You want to talk Sixers? Yeah, I mean, look, I I do want to clarify because a couple of weeks ago, I sort of pointed to them as being a Fugazi in the East. And I really only said that because they were like the only East team aside from Brooklyn that was playing well at the time. And so it was more a statement on the fact that like that, that was kind of the only team that was really able to misrepresent itself as a championship contender because the rest of the teams in the East were representing themselves as non-contenders. 
and I haven't changed my mind about the fact that I don't think they can win a championship as currently constructed, but I think it's pretty hard at this point to dispute the fact that they're the second best team in the conference. What do you think? Yeah, I defended them two weeks ago, and I don't know why, and I think we've completely reversed roles, because now I'm saying they're the biggest fugazi in the East. (laughs) Well, okay, so I I think we don't need to rehash our reasons for doubting them, because it's like such well-trod ground, but one correction I think that I do want to issue in regards to the Embiid stuff, and, and I guess the doubts that I had or have about his ability to be the central hub of an offense for a finals team is that like, I focus sort of on the post and how difficult it is to, to run like a championship level offense through a post up guy. But I think really like where he's been most effective this season is as a face up guy and his mid range jump shooting has been completely out of control. He shot the three extremely well. He's taking other bigs off the bounce. I mean, he's using that rip-through move to get to the free-throw line like a zillion times a game. And if that holds, then that does change the equation, I think, for their offense and for their ability to power through playoff defenses playing through Embiid. And the fact that he has become this knockdown shooter is obviously making the fit a lot more seamless between him and Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons has been rampaging for over a month now, playing the best basketball of his career. I think, honestly, to me, their bench is a complete disaster again. And maybe that just like won't be a big thing in the playoffs, but I do think an underrated thing about them moving off of Al Horford and bringing in Dwight Howard is like Dwight Howard and Ben Simmons can't really play together. Like their offense goes into the toilet when they run those transitional lineups with those two guys out there together. But also it makes it difficult when, you know, your stagger patterns are essentially tethering Simmons and Embiid together. Those lineups have been really effective, but if those guys are sitting together and then it's like Tobias Harris has to carry the bench units, then you're in a bit of trouble as well. Um, and, I, and like part of this is the fact that they were without Shake Milton for a while and he's been really important to their bench. But that's a concern to me is is like, I, I just don't trust that second unit. And I also think like their defense, which is supposed to be the thing that carries them, hasn't been as good as I expected it to be. I think it was like seventh in the NBA right now. And given the offensive questions that they still have, I, I think they need to be better than that defensively in order for me to consider them a real championship contender. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is the 300th time I'm saying it. They need a shot creating offensive initiator for me to be able to trust this team not to piss all over itself on the offensive end in crunch time in the playoffs because whether it's how hard it is to run your offense through the post in the modern game just to get the ball into the post sometimes against playoff defenses whether it's you know and look and be his performance this season, like he's playing godly basketball and his efficiency on long jumpers, as you mentioned, um, you mentioned the mid-range and the three. If you look at his percentages on long twos, it's ridiculous. Like he is raining fire from everywhere. Even if it's sustainable in terms of him now just being a good shooter, even good shooters when they're that um, 
when they're under that much burden, when they're carrying that much of a high volume on the offensive end, even the best of them, they're going to have at least one bad game in the playoffs. You know, there's going to be a night where maybe for whatever reason, it's just not falling. The jumper's short, the legs aren't there, like whatever reason. The Sixers to me are no closer to, you know, winning minutes without Joel Embiid, uh, winning minutes when Embiid's not on his be- at his best. They're not any closer to getting there. And uh, on the offensive end, Look, this might be a, a terrible example because they overall dominated a game against the Raptors last night where, you know, they were up 16 with like a minute 45 to go. But when the Raptors made the hilariously and endearing obnoxious decision to try to extend that game despite the fact it was very clearly over, and I talk about, you know, not trusting the Sixers not to piss themselves in moments like that. Like, did you see the Sixers trying to execute down the stretch even earlier in the game when they would build like a 15 point lead and this is something i've noticed with the sixers all year i wrote about it earlier in the year at the time they were starting they were rampaging teams but they were playing bad teams and there were still things in their offense that were concerning me anytime this team gets like a pretty comfortable lead you see it in the the way they run their offense there's like a a laxedness to it that i don't like whether it's the way they set screens whether it's like how lax they seem on a dribble handoff that ends up in a turnover it's just I, I don't know how to explain it but you see it they get comfortable or something and i don't know maybe the argument is well you know they won't be like that in the playoffs because there's no such thing as comfortable but i don't know man like we've talked so many times about the bucks at this point just needing to prove it to us in the playoffs right the sixers are that for me too like i'll believe it when i see it and i'm not even seeing it in the regular season right now yeah, I mean, I, I do think there's an element of, okay, like they're, you know, they're going to get down the stretch in a tight playoff game. And I don't think it's just us that are not going to trust anybody on the court aside from Embiid to create something for them. I think that's probably true of all of the Sixers as well. Like they're going to dump the ball into Embiid and expect him to make something happen. And. That's just going to be a lot on his shoulders. I think that he has proven capable of that this season. You know, like they, they've been one of the best crunch time teams in the entire league. In the playoffs, maybe it's a little bit of a different story. And if teams are swarming him on the catch, making him give the ball up, and it becomes incumbent on one of the Sixers perimeter players to attack off the catch or even just knock down a high leverage jump shot, then I think there's a lot of shakiness there that would give me some pause. I, I don't think we need to talk too much about the Bucks because I feel like we've discussed all this. Um, I still think they're good. I still give them, honestly, as good a chance as any other East team of beating the Nets in a playoff series. And I continue to think all of this looks a lot better when Drew Holiday gets back. And also... Look, we, we knew their offseason moves were going to make them a worse regular season team, right? Now, I don't think that's a surprise. And they're struggling maybe a little bit more than I thought they were going to. But I still think their starting five is better built for the playoffs than it was last year. I just... The one thing that makes me question that is the, is the Brook Lopez decline. Like, that's concerning to me. And that is the one thing that makes me think, well, maybe they're not actually better equipped because he's been such an important part of what they do at both ends of the floor. 
and he's looked pretty rough. So we haven't really seen them play a lot of Giannis at the five lineups. So I don't know what that ultimately looks like or who is, you know, because I'm assuming in that configuration, we have the four guys, right? It's it's Giannis, Holiday, Middleton, DiVincenzo. Who's the fifth guy? Is it Bryn Forbes, you know, for floor spacing purposes, but then you, you give up something at the defensive end? You, you, you just, it, you can't play that kind of defensive zero in the playoffs, man. Is it Tory Craig, who is maybe going to cripple your spacing on offense, but is not exploitable defensively? Like, that's the, that's the thing that I'm kind of trying to figure out now is like, okay, if Brooke Lopez proves not playable in a particular playoff matchup or they want to leave him on the bench in crunch time, you know, I don't think Bobby Portis can hang either. I don't think that can be their answer. So I, I do think in that situation, it probably does have to be Giannis at the five. And I don't know who rounds out that five-man unit. So so that's the one thing that I'm kind of turning over in my head is like, I, I believe in this team in certain ways and, and in certain other ways, I don't. Yeah, I believe in them as a good team that should win a playoff series <laughs> and not much more. <laughs> a playoffs. Well, I mean, look, if, if they don't no, meet, maybe two. If maybe they don't two. meet the Nets in one of the first two rounds, then there's no reason to think that they wouldn't be that team. Okay, you're giving me a look. Yes, okay, there is reason to think that they won't be that team because they have flaws and we've seen them come to bear in the playoffs in the past. Yes, but I think they have as good a chance as any other team in the yes, East of yeah, making I get what it you're to the conference finals, provided they don't meet Brooklyn before then. I get what you're saying. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on them to do it, but I agree that they have as good a chance as any okay, other so non-Brooklyn team. I'll just ask you point blank then. If you were predicting it right now, who is playing the Nets in the conference finals? Uh, man. <laughs> I'm this... I have two guesses as to as to which team you're going to say. Look, man, this is not hometown bias. <laughs> okay, yeah. I think if the Raptors leverage their small ball lineups mm-hmm. and stay healthy, that they can get there. I don't, I don't think they can make the finals, but I think they can get to the East finals. I would, between Philly and Milwaukee. The, hmm. I, I thought you were either going to pick the Raptors or Miami. No, look. I mean, I'm, I'm still a believer in the Heat. And to be quite honest with you, I think that is a matchup the Bucks do not want in the playoffs. I still think Miami will very much trouble the Bucks, no matter what the seeding is. It's mm-hmm. just, it's hard for me to right now say, Toronto and Miami are the next best teams in the East or in, in, in the playoffs when, you know, they have a combined record of what, like four games under 500. I, I do think if the Raptors leverage their small ball lineup, they can get there. If the Heat get healthy and play to their capabilities, yeah, they can get there, but it's, it's hard to bet on that right now. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly one of Philly or Milwaukee. And it comes down to like which team do I distrust less? <laughs> Because saying which team do I trust more isn't really appropriate. Yeah, very much a glass half empty situation. Yeah. I mean, I guess guess I'd go with Milwaukee because in that case, I'd probably go with the best player between the two, which is Giannis. But I don't know, the way Embiid's playing and who who's really stopping Embiid on the Bucks. Whereas, you know, you could put Ben Simmons on Giannis and at least trouble him. Or put Embiid on him and, and have him just wait for him at the rim. Like, 
Right. I, I think and, Philly and has we've seen them do that before. Like they did that on, on on Christmas Day last year, and it was extremely effective. And I, I think the Bucks have more counters for that now. You know, with Holiday and Middleton, Middleton kind of upping his pick and roll frequency, and I think producing quite well as a pick and roll ball handler. You know, if the if the Sixers were to do that, I think the Bucks are better equipped to turn Giannis into a screener and make it more difficult for the Sixers to just have somebody lay back and wait for him at the rim. But the Sixers have good counters for what the Bucks do offensively. I, I do agree with that. Um, I th- yeah, I think the Sixers have more answers for the Bucks than the Bucks might have for the Sixers. And as I said before, like, okay, I get, you know, I'm talking about needing teams or players to prove it to me in the playoffs. So I realized Tobias Harris very much falls into that category. He has not exactly been a big game player. He's very much been an 82 game player, but big, but if he can carry over what he is doing this season and what he is at his best, that is so crucial to upping Philadelphia's ceiling because just 10 minutes ago, I was talking about how the most valuable skill in the playoffs is having a guy that can create and you know make his own shot and tough shots in the playoffs. What Tobias Harris can do from a shot creation perspective at his size really could push the Sixers ceiling up. It's just a matter of are we going to see him do it consistently in the playoffs? If he can, changes everything for me. If he can, I probably don't even think about whether it's Philly or Milwaukee for me. I, I would say that Embiid is probably the best shot creator in that matchup. With the way that he's shooting off of the dribble this year, I mean, he, he's creating his own shot better than Giannis is. Like, the dribble drive game isn't at the same level, obviously. But anyway, we, we've gotten too bogged so down in this. So here, Here's what I'd say. Brooklyn, we agree, is head and shoulders above the rest. Ceiling-wise, even floor-wise, this team should win the East. I think Philly is the next best team, all things considered. And if I had to put money on one team getting to the East Finals and meeting Brooklyn, it would be Philly. If you're allowing me a third team and maybe a more outside-the-box team, and then I do, I really do think Toronto, if they leverage the power of their small ball lineups and finally get everyone healthy, can compete with and potentially beat any East team that's not Brooklyn. All right, so let's talk about the Raptors then. Because they got off to a miserable start this season. Pascal Siakam did not look like the same player that he was last year. I mean, he did look like the same player that he was in the bubble, which was a concern. He's completely turned his season around as a scorer, as a playmaker, as a defender. He's been playing absolutely at an all-star level for the last three weeks and change. Like, he's been awesome. Fred Van Vliet, we both picked him essentially to make our all-star teams. He's been all-defensive caliber, huge shot maker, much improved playmaker in the pick and roll. Like the Raptors lack for a top end talent. Like they can't compete with your Brooklyn's or your Phillies or your, your Milwaukee's and arguably even Miami when it comes to you're in a series. Who's the best player? Like it's not going to be a Raptors player the vast majority of the time, but like, man, their, their top six is tough. And there, there are just like very few weak spots in there. And you mentioned their small ball lineup. It's like when they put those, best five players on the floor at one time, they can be super tough to deal with. And yeah, they're, they're lacking a, a quality big man, but given how strong OG Ananobi is and how functional he's looked at times as a small ball center and how well in that configuration, 
they can swarm and recover and rotate. I think they're as well equipped as basically any team in the league, apart from Brooklyn and I guess maybe the Clippers, to play that small ball lineup for extended stretches and have success with it. I I do think like come playoff time, it's not like they can't just ride with those five guys. There need to be like seven or eight guys that they trust. I think Boucher has worked his way into that conversation as being a trustworthy player. He still makes a few too many defensive gaffes to make me feel wholly comfortable with him playing like 20 minutes in a high leverage playoff game. I love Chris Boucher, but let's be honest. He would be jumping out. He'd be seven feet in the air if you were taking a (laughs) three-pointer. That's the thing. And that's, that's the kind of thing that's going to get scouted in a playoff matchup. And I actually think that he's been better lately at closing out under control, but it's still way too easy to pump fake him off his feet. And he fouls too much. He, so I don't know. Is he in that mix of somebody you trust? Is Is DeAndre Bembry one of those guys that you can trust to be part of the rotation? Like after that first five, it really, really falls off. And if you take together their lack of top end talent and their lack of any bench guys, essentially, that you could include in a trustworthy eight-man playoff rotation, it starts to get very dicey. And as much respect as I have for Pascal and OG and Kyle and Fred, I I think they have enough to win a series given the right matchup. Getting the conference finals, I think, would be a, a tough ask for this team as they're currently constructed. Yeah, I mean, I'd even argue that they really, to me, only have four trustworthy players in the playoffs because Norm Powell, for as great as a scorer as he's been the last couple of seasons now, as efficient as he's been, and as dependable for the most part as his scoring has been, you know, you talk about the mistakes Chris Boucher is prone to. Norm Powell is a pretty clear negative on the defensive end who does not give you much of anything other than his scoring. Like if he has a bad shooting night or isn't giving you, isn't scoring in bunches and scoring efficiently, he's a very big glaring negative. And in general, it's hard for me to trust guys who are that detrimental when they're not scoring, right? It's one thing if we're talking about like a true, like a superstar level scorer that, is having ref that's you know norm's an efficient score he's not at that level so if he's having a bad shooting night and giving you nothing it's tough and that's why i've said you know throughout this season that it's a shame the raptors have to rely on good norm's offense as much as they do because they absolutely do he's because, the only player on the team who can like put pressure on the right rim. but when bad norm shows up you know it's it's tough to survive those minutes man and you see it in his plus minuses some night Boucher, you know, you already mentioned him. So those two guys between Norm and Boucher, it's not that I, I think they're completely untrustworthy. It's just I'm I'm not ready to say that I completely trust them to give you consistently positive value minutes in the postseason. And, you know, for that reason, I really think the Raptors only have four of those guys. And it's tough to win in the playoffs when you only have four of those guys. I think they are a competent big man away from me picking them over Philly. The problem is, is that even though they've had success going small against Embiid in the last couple games, I I just wouldn't be able to bank on that in the playoffs. I mean, they can be disruptive on defense when they're smaller, but at some point, Joel Embiid is going to feast. 
if you're that small against them. So, you know, maybe if some combination of them being disruptive while small and Aaron Baines just being competent, which he actually was the last couple of games, if they can get that combination, then I think they can trouble Embiid and therefore trouble the Sixers. But I'd, I'd feel a lot more confident about it if they just had a competent five that could do it on a more full-time basis. And uh, yeah, that that's the, other than the Nets, that's the matchup that would worry me the most for the Raptors, just because how the hell do you, you know, answer for Joel Embiid for four to seven games when you're starting that small? To me, it doesn't even really matter if Embiid individually goes off. I mean, look, last night he was three for 13 with six turnovers, and I still thought he killed the Raptors just because of how much defensive attention they had to send his way and how many open threes he was generating just by passing out a double and triple teams. But look, when the Raptors are in sync, when they have that lineup on the floor with all of their best defenders, it's a sight to behold, man, because they rotate on a string. They close out like maniacs. They communicate incredibly well where like they're just able to sort of exchange assignments on the fly, switch up schemes, sometimes like mid possession. And I think as far as defensive synergy, there isn't really a team in the East that can replicate that. So in a weird way, it's like, I would almost trust them to slow down like Brooklyn's offense or gum up what Milwaukee does or take Joel Embiid out of a game. Like I trust them to do that more than any other team in the conference, but they're very thin once you get past that top five or top four, as you said. And as much as, you know, we gave credit at the top of the show to like what Chris Finch has brought to their half court offense and how much it's overachieved. I'd have big concerns about their ability to do that in, you know, multiple playoff series because they don't have a lot of explosiveness in the half court. They don't have a lot of guys who can put pressure on the rim. And I do think that's a big concern. A team that shouldn't have issues creating half court offense is the Boston Celtics with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. But the supporting cast for those two guys is not what it's been in recent years. Um, not just because I lost Gordon Hayward, but also because Kemba Walker looks like a shell of himself. And you know, you remember early this season, I talked about the reason I doubted the Celtics is because I, I kind of viewed it as them losing two of those creators and that Hayward was gone. And Danny Ainge was talking about them not even knowing whether this knee issue for Kemba was going to bother him long-term. And whether it's the knee injury, whether it's something else, Kemba Walker does not look like Kemba Walker. He, as I mentioned, has been a shell of himself. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have had great seasons, both great players, but given how talented the top of the East is, regardless of the fact teams aren't living up to the billing from a record perspective, I don't even think as great as Tatum and Brown are that just them two doing what they're doing is going to be enough for Boston to win a playoff series against those teams we mentioned. They're they're a losing team right now. Yeah, the Kemba thing is super concerning. I, I, they're really reeling from not having smart right now. Like I, I think that's kind of been an underplayed element of this. They're five and eight without him. It's affected them at the defensive end, obviously. He's their best defensive player. And I think sneakily, it's affected them a lot of the offensive end too, because he, you know, we can clown on his struggles as a shooter and, and the fact that, you know, he compounds that sometimes with very questionable shot selection. 
his playmaking has actually like been an important part of that Celtics offense. And with Kemba sort of in the state that he's in where he's not really breaking defenses down off the dribble, the way that he was once capable of, he's not shooting the ball well at all. He's not getting to the basket. I think they've really lost that element of creativity, playmaking, initiating that smart gives them. And that's left a lot of those duties, you know, to, to Tatum and Brown who have handled it, I think pretty well, but I do feel like we're maybe starting to see them buckle under that responsibility a little bit. And, you know, in that game where they blew a 24 point lead against the Pelicans, like full credit to the Pelicans, who I thought played very well down the stretch of that game played some of the best defense that I've seen them play all season. Like how many of those possessions just ended with Jason Tatum taking like a contested fadeaway because nothing else was really happening. You can put some of that on him for his poor shot selection, which has you know been a recurring issue. But I also think it's a result of the fact that like there, there aren't really a ton of great alternatives, and that offense isn't really generating great looks for anybody else. You know, it's a lot of time. It's just like Tatum and Brown creating for themselves. That's their best option. And big picture, like when Smart comes back, I don't know. I think it'll be easier to judge. I do still think by virtue of having two self-creators at the level of Brown and Tatum, I mean, you said it when we were talking about the Nets, right? What's the most important thing that you can have in the playoffs? Like it's shot creation. And those two guys do that at an extremely high level. And that still, to me, gives them a high playoff ceiling and one that could result in them being the team that winds up in the East Finals. But yeah, I think it's just hard to judge right now and probably should have taken that Miles Turner swap. <laughs> I think uh, I think I have license to say that because I did rip them for it at the time. So it's not Absolutely. just revisionist history here. Uh, that, that front court pairing of Tyson Thompson hasn't worked. And um, I, I feel like Robert Williams should get more burn. Like, I, I feel like he'll, he'll check into a game sometimes and make like four or five holy shit plays in a 10 minute span, but we'll also make like one or two defensive mistakes. And then we'll like ride the pine for a week. And I, I get that, you know, he, he's not the most refined players. He has a lot of holes in his game, but to me, he's a ceiling raiser, you know, way more than Tristan Thompson is. Yeah. I mean, we, we just talked about trust, right. In the playoffs and tight moments feel like Williams is one of those guys that as exciting and as ceiling raising as he can be, if you're a coach, you know, probably a lot harder to trust him with more minutes. That's or, that's why he should be playing more now. Like, how do you build that uh, trust with giving agreed. him a leash? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know, man. It's, they have similar problems in, in a sense, with, like to the Raptors, I think, where there's just like a significant drop off after their top I mean really after their top three guys given that Kemba has looked like such a shell of himself and honestly I I trust Daniel Tice too actually I think he's an underrated defender he's super solid like he's not going to make any mistakes he's not going to take anything off the table you know there are certain matchups that he'll struggle in like we saw how badly he struggled with Bam Adebayo in the conference finals last year but I don't think you have to worry about him like messing up what you're trying to do at either end of the floor, right? Like we know he's going to set those solid screens, those Gortat screens that free guys up for pick and roll drives. And he's going to hit the odd mid-range jumper and he moves his feet incredibly well. Like I trust Tice. 
but I, I just, yeah, I think they have an issue where they, they don't have enough guys. We're going to get a repeat of that Raptors Celtics classic this year, except it's going to be as a four or five first round matchup. Uh, you have anything that you haven't said before about the heat who you have never trusted and never will. <laughs> I mean, they had started to win me. Like, how could I not have been one over? They made it to the goddamn finals and took two games off the Lakers, despite being without Dragic and Bam for most of the series. But even coming into the season, like, I, you know, I had the same questions about them that I had last season, where there's an imbalance on their roster. Their best defenders are not good shooters, and their best shooters are not good defenders. And that just is maybe coming back to bite them a little bit more this season than it did last year, when by some Spolstra-induced voodoo magic, they managed to override those issues. But the thing is, like, I, I kind of watch them and I don't really know what's wrong, like why it's not working as well. I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, opposing teams have just figured them out. Like nobody's nobody's leaving Duncan Robinson open anymore, as if last year teams were just like, oh, Duncan Robinson, don't worry about him. Like, yeah. every, like the book's been out, man. People know what Duncan Robinson's capable of. They're still able to spring him open with a lot of their off-ball action. And, you know, that two-man game with him and Bam is still really effective. And maybe you have teams switching that action more to take Robinson out of the game. And like whoever's playing on Bam is pressing up higher on him. And maybe that's making it more difficult for Robinson, but then that just makes it easier for Bam. I think that's part of maybe why Bam is having such a good offensive season is like, he's leveraging that attention and the way that other, other bigs are pressing up on him and the way that teams are overplaying the handoff to Robinson to, you know, get himself into scoring position. And I don't really have a great answer for why they're like a bottom five offense right now because their defense, despite looking shaky at times is still very solid. So maybe now that Butler is like back and has, has gotten, you know, a bunch of games under his belt after what seemed like a pretty rough bout with COVID, we'll start to see them look more like the team they were last year. I also think Dragic's absence actually has been a big factor. Um, cause he's, he's been super important as far as initiating their offense. And so much of that has fallen now to ban. Haven't really had um, Avery Bradley who. Yeah, oh. absolutely. And, and like losing Jay Crowder, I think was a, a sort of under the radar, like a huge loss for them, given what he offered them in terms of defensive flexibility while also being able to stretch the floor. They haven't really found anybody to replicate what he gave them right? Like who's their big wing defender who's also stretching the floor for them? Non-existent without Crowder. I mean, I think they yeah, thought like, Bradley could handle some of that, but he's much smaller. So he wasn't going to be a big wing defender. I think they could, they thought he could take some of the, the general three and D responsibility from Crowder, but you know, he's not guarding the same caliber or size of player. So I, Right. Yeah, I, I'd Crowder, say the Crowder answer to who's doing it, it's non-existent. It do, it's not applicable. It doesn't exist. Yeah, Crowder is a primary on like Giannis, Jason Tatum, Anthony Davis at various points in the playoffs. Like Avery Bradley is not doing that. So look, I have faith in the Heat getting, you know, firmly back into the playoff mix. I, I guess, you know, what, what what's going to start to get pretty interesting is which of these teams doesn't wind up in the top six. We haven't talked about the Pacers yet, and that's the seventh team. I do think so we both say expect- Pacers or the Wizards? Don't start, okay? 
Don't get me started on this smoke and mirrors run that the Wizards are on right now. No, they've been playing well. I give them credit. Um, but yeah, I think... Do you not expect that to still ultimately be the top seven in the East, like we predicted before the season started? I do, but I, I think... I do think, and I'm not tr- trying to troll, I think the Pacers will find themselves in seventh. Like I think it's still jumbled enough that Miami's by no means out of it, that I do think the Heat will still find their way into the top six, and that... You know, the season started off very chaotically and we're just going to end up taking a very roundabout way to get to the top six that we always envision anyway. And just a, a one final note on the Heat. You know, you, you mentioned all the injuries uh, and issues and absences they've had outside of just Butler, you know, with Dragic, with Bradley, some of the other guys. With all those injuries notwithstanding, when Butler's been in the lineup, they are 11 and 8. So and when he's on the floor, they have like a, a very robust net rating. So. Right. And that's with, you know, a lot of other injuries baked in there. So I think there are still reasons to believe in this team as, you know, the top six at worst squad we thought they were. And if that happens to be the case and, you know, they don't have to worry about the play in, they're just in the regular playoff bracket. They're going to be a problem for some team in the first round. And again, I, you know, I, I don't like the matchup for Milwaukee if they draw it. I definitely don't think the Heat's, you know, days as a at worst Fugazi contender with the rest of these teams is over. They're they're still in it. Yeah, I mean, and that's sort of like why we're doing this, right? It's like you can take a team like Miami that's been kind of a disaster this year. They're three games under five hundred, and yet it's still not impossible to conceive of them making it to the Eastern Conference Finals. Um we should probably hit on the Pacers before we get out of here because they're in fourth in the East right now with a, an incredible 15 and 14 record that somehow has them on track to open the playoffs with home court advantage. Look, I think they've obviously fallen off after a pretty hot start. They've been playing without TJ Warren. That's been tough. And then look, they, they traded Victor Oladipo, one of their core rotation pieces and obviously haven't gotten any minutes from the player they received in return. And we have no idea whether Karis LeVert is going to play this season. So it's sort of hard to project what this team's actually going to look like toward the end of the year. But for now, you know, they're obviously struggling from like, the, like certain guys who are filling those minutes are a little bit overburdened, I think in those roles. And like, I'm a fan of TJ McConnell and the energy that he brings off of the bench. Frankly, Justin holiday is having a great season as a role player. I think he's a super underrated defender and he's shooting the ball better than he ever has. But without those guys, they are struggling from a lack of off the dribble shot creation in a big, big way. And we've seen Malcolm Brogdon's efficiency tail off. I think as a result of that Sabonis, who's been great this year, has also played an exorbitant number of minutes. And I, I don't know, they're just they're just a little bit thinned out right now. And it sucks for them because they got off to that really promising start. Miles Turner is still having an unbelievable defensive season. But one question for you before we get out of here. If because as we've, you know, joked or it's been a semi joke, but I actually believe it, that uh you know, I think I, I made the quip earlier this season that of all the of all the really good Pacers teams to lose in the first round, this is certainly one of them. Um, <laughs> but 
I will ask you, as an astute observer of the Indiana Pacers, is there one Eastern Conference team that we've spoken about so far, particularly from like the top portion of the East, that you think would be the best matchup for the Pacers if this team has any hope in hell of actually getting out of the first round? You know, weirdly enough, I think it might be Philly. I think the teams that have really hurt the Pacers in the past are teams with like a lot of perimeter talent. And they've struggled with those teams for myriad reasons, but a big reason is just like they they don't have as good as Holiday has been, like he's doesn't have a ton of size and like they don't have that like one big lockdown wing defender. They are also routinely playing a big at the four position. So teams that play wings at the four position can space them out and beat them with speed. It'd get dicey for them at the offensive end, trying to puncture that Sixers defense, I guess. That, that would be a big concern. I don't know if they'd be able to score enough in that series. But I kind of think like for their defense, that might be the best matchup. I don't know. With uh, At the same time, like Embiid can kind of put Turner in the basket. Like... Post-defense isn't Miles Turner's forte. Maybe I'm wrong on this one. I, I would need some more time to actually fully think it through. But yeah, I mean, just thinking about it now, it's like th- there aren't a ton of great matchups for them, frankly. Yeah. And that's that's sort of the issue. That's been the issue for them like in the past several postseasons. On top of the fact that they just haven't been healthy, which hopefully they will be this year, but who knows. But yeah, it, it just like as sort of solid as they are across the board, they rarely find themselves in a matchup where it's like, oh, the Pacers have this huge matchup advantage that they're going to have over this team. It's more just like, okay, can the Pacers do X, Y, and Z to like try and neutralize what this other team does well? Very rarely finding something that like this team is quaking in their boots because they can't stop this one thing the Pacers can do. Yep. Solidly unspectacular. And I don't say that as like a troll. It's just... (laughs) It's, it's what the Pacers are. You know, it's what this current iteration of the Pacers is. They're solidly unspectacular. And they'll win regular season games. They'll get to the playoffs. And, you know, they, they they have the overall talent and depth and balance, I think, to trouble some good teams in the East, but don't have that sizable matchup advantage in any scenario where you can really bank on them, milking that and, you know, carrying them to a series win. Yeah, I do hope that we just get to see them healthy at some point this season, though. For sure. I think, that, you know, like, I, I want to see what it looks like. All right, let's end on this lighthearted note. Let's try to take, like, 30 seconds each maximum here because we're running pretty long. Uh, last week's fan shout-out was Patrick Taylor. And I mentioned at the end of that show that we were going to get to a question Patrick asked us last week, this week. And the question was, he had it for each of us, if we could replace each other with a active NBA player to co-host the podcast with us, who would it be? So I'll let you go first. Maybe a fun thing would be we can guess who each other's going to pick. I think you're going to go with Doug McDermott. So you can... <laughs> <laughs> you guys I don't even know talk, anything about Doug McDermott. Pacers ball all day long and about the great Hoosier State. But who is your actual pick? I mean, it's maybe an obvious one, but I think I would have to go with Draymond. Like... He, I find him to just be the most entertaining NBA player going right now, the most candid. And like, 
he could throw some hot takes out there, but he's also going to be down to have a real in-depth conversation about X's and O's and basketball minutia. He gives you sort of the best of both worlds. And I also think, like, you know, I love Draymond and I don't always agree with the stuff that he says. And, and I think that would be part of the fun, you know, is is like disagreeing with him with certain stuff and getting into it and hopefully engaging in like a lighthearted and good faith debate. I'm sure he would get fired up some of the time and I appreciate it when he gets fired up. I just think he would be the most enjoyable person, you know, in the league today to just actually like sit down and chop it up with and have a conversation about basketball, about the league and the culture of the NBA and the politics of it. Like I think he's sort of plugged into all of that and has a really unique and candid perspective. So um, that would be my choice. Draymond also recently said that he hopes to one day be uh, basketball's version of Tony Romo in terms of an ex-player analyst that really does a good job of breaking down the game and teaching people and and the viewers and fans uh, and showing them what's going on, which delighted me to hear because I've said many times, I think Draymond's a basketball genius, one of the four or five smartest players in the game. And anyone who knows me as you know a non-basketball fan and another, uh, a sports fan in general, and as a football fan as well, knows how much I enjoy and adore the analysis that Tony Romo provides and have often said, I wish ex-players in other sports treated being a color commentator the way Romo does in that, look, you were a player. You were a great player. Give me some insight that I don't have or that fans don't have. Do it in an entertaining way and, you know, appreciate and admire the current generation rather than knocking them down. And Romo checks all those boxes and I think Draymond could too. So I very much liked hearing that from Draymond. And then right. this is like, yeah, just sorry, before you go on, like it, it bothers me sometimes when, you know, someone will be critical of like the inside the NBA guys for clearly just like not watching the NBA and rarely talking about the game on anything more than like a very general surface level. And then a lot of people will sort of shoot back. Well, it's like they're entertainers. Like it's not really their job to like, yo, you can do both. You know, you, you can be entertaining, like you can goof around, you can crack jokes, and you can also educate the viewers and like use your immense wealth of basketball knowledge to actually enlighten us a little bit. You know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. All right. You, you want to take a guess at mine or should I just go? Um, is it Dwayne Casey? <laughs> no. No, but I like it. I mean, I went off the board guessing yours was Doug McDermott, so I appreciate the off the board prediction. No, it's Jimmy Butler. It's Jimmy Butler. Oh, yeah. Okay. Fair. We could we could uh, worship at the altar of Pat the Godfather <laughs> Riley together. We could definitely, I think, um, have a lot of fun calling out clowns around the league. And I think he would very much appreciate me rushing to label teams and players frauds. No, but in all seriousness, I think... Um, I think Draymond's the right answer, to be honest with you, for both of us. But yeah, uh, I'll give a second name. And it's Jimmy because I just really, really admire his fieriness, his competitiveness, but his authenticity in a very unique way. He he leans so heavily into who he is as this insane, fiery, workaholic competitor that I think it sometimes comes across as inauthentic 
and maybe a little fraudulent and a little like attention starved. But I really do think if you watch the way he plays, you watch the way he competes, you read interviews with him, you see clips of him. Like, I, I think it actually is a pretty authentic version of who he is. And it's just that we're so used to guys who are like that being inauthentic. But I think with Jimmy Buckets, like what you see really is what you get. And I think he uh, he's a fantastic guy to talk ball with, to talk life with, to talk sports with. He's also a big soccer fan. So, you know, he and I could shoot the shit about that. So yeah, I, I don't want to replace Wolfon, but if I had to, and if Draymond was off the board, I'd go with Jimmy Buckets, who also said in a recent GQ profile by a very good basketball, soccer, and culture writer at Zeets on Twitter, Zito. Um, Butler said in that profile towards the end that he also just legitimately needs and wants more friends. So I think he and I could be a really great Pound the Rock partnership. But um, that that co-host chair is taken for now and and hopefully taken by you for a long time. So Well, Thank- listen, if, if anybody wants to get the word out to Jimmy Butler, we will gladly open up a third chair and be his friends. <laughs> Thanks for the question, Patrick. Thanks again, uh, you know, for being a loyal listener. We gave him the shout out last week and usual weekly call out for any of our fans to find us and hit us up on social media. Give us your feedback. Let us know what you think of the show, how long you've been a listener, where you're listening from, and we will get you a shout out on the next Pound the Rock. All right. We went even longer than last week somehow, but it's a mega pod that I hope and think people will enjoy and can take their time listening to. We'll be back next week with some as-to-be-determined topic that hasn't come up yet, but we'll figure it out, and we will try not to hit the 90-minute mark next week. Until then, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock. 